We are up to chapter 6, Mishnah number 4. Kachi darka shel Torah. This is the way of Torah. Pas bamelach tochal. You should eat bread with salt. Umayim bimesora tishta. And you should, or bimesura tishta. You should drink water in small measure. Ve'ala aretz tishan. And upon the ground, the earth, you shall sleep. And you should live a life of deprivation. And you should toil in Torah. So live a life of privation, a life of asceticism. You eat bread with salt, very basic diet. You drink a small amount of water. You sleep on the floor and you study Torah and you engage and toil in Torah. If you do like this, you are praiseworthy and it is well with you. You're praising this world and it'll be good for you in the world to come. So as we mentioned, the theme of this chapter is all about Torah and Torah study. And we started off chapter 6 with mission number 1, which is the power of Torah in general. Someone who studies Torah, Lishma, someone who studies Torah, for its sake, merits all these amazing blessings. And then mission number two is the danger of ignoring Torah. Every day there is a baskol, a prophetic voice coming out of Mount Choreb, talking about the people who ignore and neglect Torah. And mission number three was about the relationship that we should have with our Torah teachers. Even if someone teaches you only one law or one verse or one letter, you should accord them respect. And finally, we're talking about in this Mishnah, the relationship between Torah and material life, if you want to pursue the path of Torah, what should be your attitude towards indulging in physical pleasures? And we're told you should avoid it. You eat a little bit of bread and you dip it in salt and that's your food and a little bit of water and you sleep on the ground. You don't need a fancy sleep number, fancy cool mattress. You don't need to indulge in all of the physical pleasures of life. Now, the question I think that we have to ask is, we are trained to believe that the Almighty created us to have pleasure. And we don't believe in monasticism. And we don't believe in asceticism. Talmud tells us that if someone becomes a Nazir, namely someone who's committing to be abstinent from wine, for typically a minimum of 30 days, at the conclusion of their Nazir period, they must bring an atonement sacrifice, a carbon chatas. Why, says the Talmud, why when someone abstains from wine for 30 days must they bring an atonement sacrifice? Al shetzir atzmo menhayayin. Because he pained himself from abstaining or by abstaining from wine. It seems like they might give us wine. Wine. I have been reliably told, is delicious. It gives you pleasure. And therefore, why are you withholding a pleasure the money gives you? And that is tantamount to a sin, and you have to bring an atonement offering for your transgression. So clearly, our sages are telling us that withholding and abstaining from physical pleasures is not really the Jewish way. We don't believe in living a monastic life. We don't believe in celibacy. In fact, we're told if you're a celibate and you don't procreate, it's a terrible sin, we're told. We're created to have pleasure. 
why is this Mishnah lionizing asceticism? You remember back in Genesis, Jacob commandeers, usurps the blessings intended for Esau. And what are those blessings? What are the blessings that Jacob received? The dew of the heavens and the fat of the land and lots of produce and lots of wealth and material blessings. It seems like that's a good thing. That's what Jacob wanted. That's what Rebecca wanted. That's what we ended up with. Again, it doesn't seem to be lionizing asceticism, yet our mission comes and tells us a little bit of bread, you dip it in salt, that should be enough, a little bit of water in small measure, sleep on the ground, live a very painful physical life so that you can focus on Torah. We even had a Mishnah earlier in chapters of the Father's Imperativos that talks about how it's imperative to have food because without food, there can be no Torah. Imein kemach ain't Torah. If there's no flour, there is no Torah. So, of course, you could say, well, you need flour to make bread, to dip your bread in salt. But seemingly, we're getting different messages over here. On one hand, we're told it's very important to have a physical life that has at least, you know, the basics covered. And here we're told, no, it's very important to withhold from physical pleasures. That is, I think, a question that we have to ask on this whole Mishnah and this whole theme of asceticism. Now, there are a variety of different approaches in the commentaries. And we're, of course, as we like to do here, we're going to share a panoply of different ideas offered by the commentaries and try to pull out some of the valuable lessons from this Mishnah. Now, the most interesting or the most surprising, shall we say, comment comes courtesy of Rashi. Rashi, of course... He's known, the hallmark of Rashi is that he always gives us the simplest interpretation, the interpretation that most syncs with the actual words that he's trying to comment upon. And here he seems to take a very radical position that seems to reverse the simple meaning of the Mishnah. Says Rashi, this Mishnah is not being addressed to a rich person. This is not telling someone who has means, who has the capacity, who has the financial wherewithal to say live a life of pain and suffering and privation in order to study Torah. That is not the intention of this Mishnah. Rather, it's telling us that even if a person is so poor and destitute and all they have is a little bit of crusty bread to dip into some salt and a little bit of water and they have very little meager means, nevertheless, that's not an excuse to ignore and neglect Torah, even when you have such a difficult life of privation. Nevertheless, if all you have is some bread to dip in salt and some water, and you don't even have a sofa or a bed or a mattress on the ground to sleep on, you got to sleep on the floor. Nevertheless, that's not a good excuse to withhold from studying Torah. Torah is the spiritual lifeblood. Torah is the most important pursuit. Torah is the greatest ideal. And therefore, that should not be a good reason to withhold from Torah study. And then he adds, in the end, if you study Torah in a difficult situation, out of poverty, 
the Almighty will send you material blessing as well. We know that the Almighty wants to aid those who are pursuing the agenda of the soul. If you are here in this world and you're trying to understand the Almighty's will and you want to do what is incumbent upon you, the Almighty will clear away all the obstacles in your way. He will remove all those hurdles and he will allow you to have more comfort, a bigger buffer, he will grant you wealth. So it's interesting that you read this Mishnah, it seems like, well, poverty is an ideal. That's what you should do. Embrace a life of poverty in order to study Torah. And Rashi really reverses the meaning. He says, no, this is not talking about someone who has and they should withhold from consuming. Even someone who does not have should study Torah. And then he adds... The end, so to speak, of someone who engages in Torah study out of poverty and privation, eventually they will be granted a blessing of material wealth and stability. That's the comment of Rashi. I think if we read that, it makes a lot of sense. We don't have to struggle so much with this Mishnah. You know, today we live in a world of unprecedented abundance. If you took any of our great, 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 great grandparents and you resurrected them, and you just brought them a day in your life. And they say, wait a minute, what? Your dirty clothing? You don't need to go to the river and scrub it for an hour. You just put it in a box. And then you push a button and then it's all clean. And you put it in another box. And it's never made sense to me why you need two boxes. That's a different question. You put it in another box and it gets dry. And if you want to travel to Israel, you don't need to take a caravan for three months and risk dying. And you get, you put it on, go on a plane. And they serve you terrible United food and you get there in 12 hours. What? Oh, and you make a video call with your cousin half a world away. We live in what our sages would definitely describe or our antecedents would definitely describe as messianic times. This is what they told us about. There's abundant food. The problem is that there's too much calories. Are you kidding? You don't have the risk every year that there'll be a famine and everyone will die. And you guys still complain that much. (laughs) That's what our ancestors would say if they saw our world. In our world, the idea of subsisting on a little bit of bread and salt, it doesn't even exist. Like these things are so foreign to us. But reading Rashi, I feel like this, this does this does sync, so to speak, with our understanding. Okay, he's saying, even if you don't have, that's not a good excuse to ignore and neglect Torah study. That's the approach of Rashi. Some of the other approaches, I think, do rattle, so to speak, the modern sensibilities. For example, the Talmud tells us, in the book of Nadarim, that we should be very careful with the children of the impoverished. He's a hair shall aniim. Be very careful with the children of the impoverished. Why? Shemehem teitze Torah. For from them, Torah will emerge. There is an idea that Torah flourishes in harsh conditions. Our status tell us. Before that you pray, the Torah should enter your innards. Pray that delicacies should not enter your innards. It seems to imply 
that our heart, maybe even our gut, can desire only one thing. If you want delicacies and that enters your innards, there's no room for Torah there. So you have to pray that the delicacies don't enter your innards. And only then can you pray the Torah should. Because if there are delicacies in your innards, that's what you become. You become a foodie. And that becomes your pursuit. And all that just ends up being fodder for the worms and maggots. And the gold is neglected. The Torah is neglected. Now again, this idea that idealizes poverty or at least shows us how Torah flourishes in those very harsh conditions is very difficult for us to absorb because, you know, it's very hard to tell us that that's an ideal. No one would choose that. No one would aspire to that. In fact, we pray every day for prosperity and material well-being. But I think there's something certainly on a conceptual level to appreciate about the fact that a life of abundance, a life where we have everything that we want, oh, I'm in the mood today of lasagna, boom, like that. You snap your finger and you have whatever you want. Oh, today I need falafel. We have we have so much abundance, material abundance, that that really dominates our, our life, what we think about. And when you finish your gourmet breakfast, you're thinking about your lunch and your steaming cup of coffee. And that really takes over a lot of your experience. And where's Torah in this dynamic? I wanted to maybe suggest an idea here. You know, this chapter is talking about Torah. And it's not just Torah as a guidebook to life, as an ideal. It's talking about a pursuit of Torah greatness. That's the subject of this Mishnah. It started off with talking about studying Torah Lishma and how it transforms a person. Perhaps we can say that this Mishnah is not really addressing the masses. This is talking about someone who wants to be an outlier, who wants to be a standout, who wants to be a person who's dedicated their lives to Torah greatness. And it's telling that person, you have to choose which world you want to make yours, you want to prioritize. If you want to have your steak dinners and your lavish lunches and you're always thinking about the next meal, that's fine. That's not a Torah violation, but that is not the path that brings you to Torah greatness. You want to be an outstanding Torah sage. That is not how you will arrive at that. So for us, you know, we're simple people. Maybe you guys are not. I'm a simple person, right? We, we want to be good people, but we're, we're kind of normal, right? So maybe this mission is a little bit hard for us to understand because we're, we're trying to, you know, be balanced. We want to be normal. We want to be engaged in the world and in the culture and in the popular culture and in the news and the politics and the sports and all the other nonsense that exists in our world. There is a kind of person, and I know some people like this, all they care about is the agenda of their soul. That's all they care about. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. 
they don't care about the sports and the politics and the news and all the manipulations that people are subject to when they watch cable TV. None of that doesn't make any impact on their lives at all. For them, those people, they're pursuing Torah greatness and they have to know that in the event that they make a priority out of their physical, material lives, to the degree that they're committed to that, that is going to encroach upon their pursuit of Torah greatness. But I think nevertheless, even for us, for the masses, for simple people, this ideal can be adopted on a small scale. Call it micro-asceticism. Even us, we're simple people. These are very lofty levels that maybe we theoretically aspire to, but this is not how we're living our lives. We could still take a page out of this Mishnah and say, we don't have to indulge in every single material pleasure. We can have a small point, so to speak, of asceticism, just to remember that we're here for a grander purpose. We have a soul. The soul will live on beyond its stint in this world. And we ought to prioritize that agenda, or at least that ad- that agenda should be elevated and it should be part of our consciousness and our pursuits. I had another suggestion about this Mishnah. Tell me if you agree with this. If you look at this Mishnah, It's talking about consumption. How should you actually live your life? You should, you should eat a very meager allowance of bread and salt and some water, sleep in the ground. It doesn't say that all you should own, all you should have, just some bread and some salt. It's talking about consumption, what you should eat. The Talmud tells us that the wealthiest Jew, one of the wealthiest Jews of all time, was Rabbi Judah the Prince. He was the Prince of the Jewish people. And he was inordinately wealthy. Nevertheless, the Talmud tells us quite memorably in the book of Tzubas, page 104a, when he was on his deathbed, he lifted up his ten fingers and he said, Master of the world, this is a quote, Ribonashlam, it's a Master of the world, it's known and revealed to you that my ten fingers, they toiled solely in pursuit of Torah. And I did not enjoy even a single finger's amount of pleasure in this world. In that merit, may my rest, i.e. may my demise, may my death be in peace. We see here a certain a certain paradigm of someone who had all the material wealth in the world, and that is a blessing, but, nev- but nevertheless, that was not an ideal, the consumption part of that he did not indulge upon it. Notwithstanding the fact that he was the wealthiest Jew of his time, he had material abundance, and that was indeed a blessing, but nevertheless, it didn't get to his head, it didn't get to his gut, he was able to have all of that, and not partake and indulge upon it. But in general, I think the, the overarching principle of this Mishnah is that we have to reorient our perception of material wealth and material matters. We should view the material matters as being ultimately 
immaterial. The Rambam tells us, this is in the Laws of Torah Study, Chapter 3, Law Number 6. The person whose heart is inspired and wants to fulfill the midst of Torah study properly and wants to be crowned with the crown of Torah should not think about other things and should not place upon his heart that he shall acquire Torah with wealth, with honor, and you could have both. And he quotes our Mishnah, Kachi Darkest of Torah, this is the way of Torah, eat some bread with salt, drink some water in moderation, and sleep on the ground. I think what he's telling us, I think this is the overarching theme of this Mishnah. There are things that are important, and there are things that are not important. There are things that are nonsense, ultimately. Don't pay attention to the nonsense. Realize that all these things are temporary and fleeting, They are all an illusion. They don't endure past your stint in this world. All that delicious steak is just more steak for the worms and maggots. Don't waste your time and your life with trivialities when you can stockpile gold and silver, Torah and mitzvahs. You have a chance over here to access the greatest, most cherished treasures in the world. Yes, you need food. You need food. You need fuel. But if you have a focus on Torah and you realize what Torah is really all about, everything else becomes meaningless. Yes, we said earlier, man was created for pleasure. And we don't believe in denial of pleasure. But when you've tasted a little bit of the sweet taste of Torah, you realize that there are much higher levels of pleasure to pursue And the Torah is the guide for how to access those higher levels of pleasure. And that should be a greater focus than all the small trivialities. The Rambam tells us that just as a king who deals with matters of state and matters of great importance doesn't want to play ball or play cards like small people. Small people have small concepts of pleasure, you become a bigger person and there are more important things that should demand your attention. You have now graduated to higher levels of pleasure. When you taste Torah, yes, it's nice to have a steak, but it's nothing compared to what the true pleasures that are available for you in this world. Rabbi Israel Salanter said, I like this framing a lot. He said that our dispute, our debate, our disagreement with the other philosophies is not that they seek pleasure and we seek something else. We seek pleasure and they seek pleasure. The difference is what is the nature of that pleasure? We are pursuing a higher level of pleasure, the highest level of pleasure, and as a result, consequently, once you've tasted that, everything else is put properly into their place. Now, the Ruach Chaim says something really interesting. He points out that the one commodity that is truly finite is time and attention. Today, we live a world of abundance, but we don't have infinite time. 
And then he says, if you have a little bit of bread and salt, there's not so much prep time to prepare that meal. And thus, the most valuable commodity that you do have, i.e. time, that is being preserved. And then he adds, you know, it's bad enough. It's insulting enough to us that we need to eat. Think about it. We have a soul, a soul that is loftier than angels. Nevertheless, like animals, we need to consume food. We need to be recharged with physical fuel. Angels don't need that. That's bad enough. That's insulting enough to us as soul-bearing entities. It's insulting enough to say, hey, you have to stop and eat food. But to embellish it and to focus on fancy foods and the right notes and the right tastes and the right finish, that's just adding insult to injury. And again, for us, this is a radical idea. But if you think about it, this is what we're here for. Maybe it's too much to ask for us to give up our desires and our foodie customs. But at least in principle, on a theoretical level, it's an interesting thing to ponder. If we're truly here as a soul trying to accomplish great things, let us make that the focus and everything else should be put in its proper place. And he ends, the Ruachim does, with, I think, a more palatable proposal for us. He points out, if you look at this Mishnah, and you examine the tenses, it says, you should eat bread, and you should drink water. So that's in the future tense. Whereas, when it talks about study, it's talking about in the present tense. You should study now. And he says that what this is telling you is that we have to commit to study now and in the future we will eat in these meager amounts. We're not going to pursue the material wealth because if you do that, it may flee from you. But if you commit yourself to study the Amadi's Torah, and to pursue that now, the Almighty will make sure that in the future you have not just the bread and the salt. He'll make sure you have whatever you need. You're about to live a dignified and respectful life, even on the physical plane, as you pursue your spiritual agenda. I want to share one more idea, or one more at least comment, that I found really interesting, courtesy of the Chassid Yavitz. And I want to end with an amazing letter that I found in my grandfather's notes. Unbelievable letter that I found. I don't believe it's ever been published. Maybe it has been. I don't know. But I found that notes. So I'm going to share that with you. It's our little secret. The Chazid Yaifetz points out that there's a stark asymmetry between our competing desires, our competing interests. Our soul wants Torah. Our body craves delicious food. One of them, by default, is captivating, is desirable. We all naturally pursue it. And Torah, at least by default, before you've tasted it, Torah is like eh, some ancient law. It's some dogma. Don't you know that religion has caused so much bloodshed? We're not 
instinctively drawn to Torah the way we are to food. So there's an imbalance here. The thing that's going to provide us eternal life is something that we have an aversion towards. It causes a major problem. The thing that's going to transform ourselves is not, at least by default, desirable. And therefore, he says, the way to resolve this problem is to take that incumbent desire for food and banish it completely. And that's the way you start it. You banish it completely so that you can be empty and thus you can introduce a new pursuit. And he adds a humorous analogy, even though I'm not sure, I'm not sure this would, f- would fly in today's, uh, in today's world. He says, imagine, 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 imagine you, you have a wife that you love and you decide you want to marry another wife. How is that going to work? The only way it can work is if you get rid of the first wife in order to introduce the second wife. That's the analogy. But the, the, the idea trying to convey is we have something that we are so in love with. And that's our physical and bodily pursuits. And this mission is telling us, if you want to introduce a competitor, you have to banish your first wife, your first true love. Because there's no room now for anything else. Not that there's an ideal to live an ascetic life. The only way you can create even a desire for Torah is if there's a small window in which you are open to a different kind of love. So you have to banish that, introduce the Torah, develop a taste for it, develop a love for it, and then you can bring back the first wife. Because then it's not, you know, once the Torah is ready in place, once that love has been firmly ensconced within you, then the competitor is not much of a competitor. You can have really both. And then he adds an astonishing point. He says, this is why the Almighty sent us to Egypt for hundreds of years of suffering before he gave us Torah. Any other nation, when they are told, hey, we have the Almighty's Torah. It's incredible. Come to the mountain. Join with us. Get the Torah. Every other nation said, I'm sorry. No, thanks. We're good. Keep it. Keep the Torah. We're not interested. The Jewish people said, we will do and we will listen. The Jewish people were eager because they had no other love, so to speak, in their heart. They had just spent several hundred years as slaves. They had no other love. There was no incumbent. They were hungry. And when they were hungry, you can introduce the Torah to that environment, and that is fertile grounds for Torah to take root. It had to come to a very down, out-of-their-luck, depressed nation because no other nation would accept it. And on an individual level, there has to be a similar kind of process. There There has to be like a, you have to impose upon yourself a temporary servitude, a temporary life of privation in order to make a hunger, in order to introduce Torah. Not that that's the ideal because, again, like we spoke about earlier, we don't believe in, in abstinence and asceticism, but the only way for the Torah to even take a foothold within you, land a beachhead in your heart, 
It's only if there is some vacancy, if there's some void, if there's a vacuum, and that's what we have to create. And he adds a final point. And he ends with a great line. I love this line. He says that it's actually beneficial to be a little bit more low maintenance. You develop a taste for the finer things in life, and then there's a famine. And then the economy takes a downturn. And you're used to your fancy car and your chauffeur and your penthouse suite and your finely manicured tastes. Now you are suffering. You're more fragile to the turns in the economy. And then he adds, this is, this is the great line. The Nazir, the Nazir is someone who abstains from wine. He has no problem. He doesn't suffer when the orchards are stricken. The orchards that produce the wine. If there's, God forbid, if there's an earthquake and all of Napa Valley with all the wine country gets destroyed. God forbid, right? If you if you don't drink wine, it doesn't matter to you. That's his idea. That's his analogy. There is a certain freedom that comes from being low maintenance and having a, you know, a very basic happiness, so to speak, with, with a very basic diet. If you live in a really small house and it's really inexpensive and the mortgage is paid off, there's a certain freedom knowing the economy takes a downturn, you're still good, you've accustomed yourself to living with less, that is a better kind of freedom as opposed to someone who develops a dependency for the the nicer things in life, for the more expensive things in life. They always live with the specter, the looming specter of an economic downturn. What if I lose this? What if I have to sell my private plane? Oh, isn't that a terrible thing? I'm going to have to fly economy. With the rest of the plebeians? That sounds awful. That sounds terrible. There is a certain degree of pain that you avoid by living a low-maintenance life. Okay, let's let's get to this letter that my grandfather wrote that I found. He wrote this on the sixth day of Hanukkah in the year, the end, it was either the end of 1973 or the beginning of 1974. I don't know. He only has the Hebrew date here. I don't know what the Gregorian equivalent date is. Now, during this time, this is the middle of the Yom Kippur War. And during the Yom Kippur War, my grandfather, a blessed memory, he went to visit a lot of the army installations in the Sinai and in Egypt in order to provide inspiration and to speak to the soldiers who are living a life of, of tremendous danger in the battlefield. So this is the quote. I'm going to read you just translation. In the past week, I spent two days with an artillery regiment. Wow, how do they live? Such tension and such simple living without any pleasures of life. Even when they go to sleep, they cannot put on pajamas. They can't remove their their fatigues, their, their army clothing. They have to even sleep with their shoes on. And they're so far away from home. And I was thinking, this is my grandfather writing, if we would live our life like this in the war of Torah, 
in Jewish literature, Torah, the pursuit of Torah is called a war. The war of Torah. If our pursuit of our objective in our war, in Torah, was the same way, with the same dedication, literally just subsisting on bread and salt and sleeping on the ground and living life of pain, how much will we ascend in Torah? And the problem is that we think, you know, this life of pain and suffering and privation, that's for the soldiers. But we're not soldiers. A little bit of pleasure, a little bit of entertainment, a little bit of joy. We deserve it. And that's why we don't grow in a meteoric fashion in Torah and we stay small. This is like a, like a window into what this Mishnah is telling us. If we're serious about it and we take our pursuit of Torah with the same degree of seriousness that soldiers on the battlefield take it, on the front lines, and that kind of life that they live become Torah giants. And unfortunately, that's not really what... Uh, what we live, how we live. We don't look at ourselves as soldiers and that is why we remain small. I think the general idea of this Mishnah is that there's a certain incompatibility between a pursuit of life, of physical pleasures and material matters and the spiritual agenda. We have a body and a soul and each one's got their agenda and we have to choose which one of those to favor. And the mission is telling us, if you want Torah and you're serious about it, you have to make a choice. You have to make a trade-off. You have to divorce one wife, so to speak, as we said. Divorce one love and make room for the love of Torah. I think for us, simple people, it's probably a call to re-examine our consumption habits and to recognize that... There's no free lunches. By us choosing to prioritize our physical lives, our lives as a body, the agenda of the body, necessarily we are pulling away from the agenda of our soul. We have to realize that the money gave us all these pleasures. And truthfully, the agenda of our soul and its pleasure is a test for us. It's an impediment for the journey of our soul back to its source. And of course, there are many layers and levels of that. But on a principle level, to recognize that point is a grand transformation that we all merit to access some of the pleasure and the beauty of Torah. And ultimately, in the event that we do appreciate what Torah is all about, we'll discover that we're actually forfeiting nothing. As always, my email address is Rabbi Walby at gmail.com. That is spelled R-A-B-B-I-W-O-L-B as in boy, E as in echo at gmail.com. I look forward to your questions and your comments.